I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning we celebrate Trinity Sunday. And the Sunday following Pentecost is always appointed as Trinity Sunday because as we progress through God's unfolding of salvation with the church calendar each year, it's only after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost that the reality of the Trinity is fully revealed. The reality that we worship one God in three persons. So this morning I may talk about the Trinity here and there. But more importantly, I want to address the epidemic. No, I'm not talking about COVID-19, but about the much older epidemic of racism in America, both personal and systemic, that has come to the forefront once again. As I'm sure all of you are aware, for the past two weeks, there have been protests all over the nation and even the globe, sparked by dismay at the murder of George Floyd, which itself came on the heels of the slayings of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor earlier in the spring. These protests, which have now occurred in more than 700 cities and towns in the United States alone, have been organized to proclaim that every life is equally valuable regardless of skin color and to plea for justice and reform. And this reality of people of all colors and classes and political parties coming together in this manner challenges us as individual Christians and corporately as the church to re-examine how we think about these issues and to consider how or whether to respond to this movement ourselves. This week I was blessed, truly blessed, to watch a roundtable discussion among the Anglican, the ACNA clergy, a roundtable about race, justice, and social unrest, which I commend to you and will draw from at times and what I have to say this morning. In the words that follow, which are, Heavily footnoted on the manuscript, by the way, if you want to seek out some further reading. In the words that follow, I want to give you an opportunity to take a break from sorting through all that's going on, primarily through social media or secular news intake, and instead to consider these matters in light of God's word and within the context of the body of Christ, though... We remain virtual for now. While everyone who's been participating in the Black Lives Matters protests and advocating for racial reform in recent days, while every one of them is not a believer, not even close to everyone, I want to begin by reminding us all that the origin of this idea that every person is equally valuable, that belief comes from our holy scriptures, the Bible. Our gospel passage today from Matthew 28 recounted Jesus commissioning his disciples to take the good news of salvation to all nations 
And the Greek word there for nations is literally ethnos, where we get the word ethnicities. As Jesus makes clear that every human is equally worthy of the salvation of his kingdom. And then the final book of the Bible, Revelation, emphasizes how the kingdom of God will one day be revealed as comprising every nation, tribe, people, and language. And yet the notion of every life mattering can actually be traced all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1, which we just read. Now, this passage was likely appointed for us today because of its mysterious mention of us in chapter 1, verse 26. Historically, many in the church have thought that this might be the first mention of the Trinity, though it more likely refers to the Old Testament concept of the council of the gods. But I digress. And we could certainly have a vigorous and healthy debate about how to understand the genre and historicity of early Genesis and what particular means God used in bringing all of creation about, culminating in his beloved humankind. But one intention of Genesis 1 that all believers can agree on is it establishes God as the creator, as the wellspring from whom everything that exists has ultimately sprung. And because God made all of creation, he loves it all. And this gives all of creation an inherent worth. In fact, when theologians have considered why God decided to create in the first place, they've often concluded that it was from an overflow of God's love. Certainly, God had no need to create the world and the universe. God's never been in need of anything. But it's been said that the love between the persons of the Trinity was so perfect and abundant that God wanted to share that love beyond himself. Therefore, it was from an overflow of God's love that God created, and humankind was his crowning achievement. Six times during the first six days of the creation narrative, God calls what he has created good. But after he's created humankind, in verse 31, he calls creation very good. And as the only creatures God has made in his image and after his likeness, according to verse 26, this is the bedrock reason that every human being matters and is worthy of being treated with an equal level, level of dignity and value. But as Christians in America, we have to grapple with the reality that in the history of our country, and even some of its success, has resulted from a rejection of this bedrock Christian truth of the equal worth of every human being. And as painful as that is, we can no longer continue to ignore this history. 
As many of you know, as much as the U.S. Constitution is hailed as a grand document, upon its drafting in 1787, it not only propped up the enslavement of black people, but it infamously counted slaves as three-fifths of a person, a fraction. And that slaves were counted as persons at all was ironically something the southern states advocated for in order to increase their state's representation in Congress. But rest assured that the slaves and their interests were not represented. Well, it wasn't until almost 100 years later after the Civil War that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments combined to correct this lawful devaluing in the Constitution, while also abolishing slavery and giving black males the right to vote. Women, of course, were not given the right to vote until the early 20th century, but we'll have to leave that subject for another day. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, there were churches of all stripes who perpetuated racism and segregation through the misuse of scripture, such as the proof texting of Paul's writings on slavery, as well as the curse of ham heresy that we talked about in January from the early books of Genesis. And yet, as has been proven once again in recent weeks, ascribing different levels of dignity or worth to a person or harboring assumptions about a person based on the color of their skin remains an epidemic in America, both in the hearts of us as individuals and systemically in our law codes still. Even after the 13th, and 15th, the 13th 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed, going back in history again a little bit, even after that, in many states, like where I'm from in Alabama, Jim Crow laws were created to diminish the effects of the amendments and to maintain the pre-war racial hierarchy by creating legalized segregation for the next 100 years. In fact, it wasn't until the 1960s that the Jim Crow era can be said to have officially ended with the passage of the Voting Rights and Fair Housing Acts. Because up until then, since the 1930s, a practice called redlining was the official U.S. government policy. The Federal Housing Administration, beginning in the 1930s, created maps where anywhere that African Americans lived or lived near was colored red to indicate, indicate that it was unsafe to insure mortgages there. Redlining was later adopted by the VA, the consequence of all this being that in the housing boom of the 1950s, as white America began building wealth in the suburbs, black people were deliberately shut out from that advancement. Well, backing up again, even after slavery was abolished in 1865, the 13th Amendment included a loophole that still allowed slavery, quote, as a punishment for a crime. 
Well, the states throughout the South began drafting laws to exploit this loophole. They were known as black codes that were designed to lead to the arrest of black people who were then put back to work and sometimes even put back to work in former plantations that were converted into prisons, such as in Angola in Louisiana. And in conditions that historians have called actually worse than slavery. Well, the legacy of these black codes continues to be reflected in the mass incarceration of black people in prisons today. In America, we lock people up at a higher rate than any other country in the world. I'm sure you've heard that. Even though studies have shown that mass incarceration doesn't make our communities any safer. So what purpose is it serving? Well, the racial bias within our prison system is numerically undeniable. For example, even though African Americans and whites have been shown to use illicit drugs at similar rates, the imprisonment rate of African Americans for drug charges is almost six times that of whites. Six times. While the for-profit private prison industry rakes in approximately $5 billion per year on the backs of those people. I'm worn out now. Suffice it to say, our country has never truly reckoned with the legacy of slavery that continues in systemic racial inequality and in police brutality toward minorities. But this isn't to say all police are bad or that we could live without police, nothing like that. What I'm actually saying is that we dishonor the police we dishonor the police if we as Christians do not hold them as an institution accountable for the fact that black people are 3.5 times more likely to be killed when they are not attacking and don't have a weapon than white people are. 3.5 times more likely. We dishonor police if we, just like we dishonor our parents, if, we, if they ask us to do something that we know is wrong and we obey them, all right, we're actually breaking the fifth commandment, calling us to honor them. Similarly, we dishonor the police if we don't hold them as Christians to account to those statistics. We dishonor them. And by the way, that statistic that, three, that black people are 3.5 times more likely to be killed when they're not attacking and don't have a weapon. That's a, st a statistic that police departments across 16 states have agreed is true. And the statistic is the same whether the officer is white or black. All of which can only be an indication that the color of the black body has become weaponized and a source of fear in many people's hearts and minds.
But because the scriptures and the teachings of Christian orthodoxy have been clear that every life has worth, as Christians, we must maintain that this is not a left-right partisan issue. Now, I'm not saying there aren't politicians and media organizations across the spectrum who are making or attempting to make it into a left-right issue. And do certain politicians and the different parties in our country perpetuate racial inequality in unique and distinct ways? Yes, they do. Does some do it perhaps more than others? Sure. But we mustn't allow these voices that seek to make this a partisan issue. As Christians in the church, we mustn't allow these voices to divide us on the question of whether, whether black lives matter as much as other lives. As Canon Esau Macaulay said on the round table this week, this is a kingdom of God issue, not a partisan issue. And the challenge before us as Christians is to ensure that we are not perpetuating any prejudice or racial oppression, either through our words or our actions, or even passively through cowardice, or unintentionally through ignorance. This is why we must make ourselves accountable to others that we are not being part of the problem, but part of the solution. And to do that, as Bishop Hobby said, we must first of all become willing to listen, to listen to the experiences of minorities and listen to them without defensiveness or recrimination. You know, by definition, by definition the word privilege means that one has not had to experience things that others have. I know I have lived a privileged life in many, many ways. And I know that a lot of that has to do with where I was born, the family I was born into, the color of my skin. So because I have experienced that privilege, the only way for me to learn about the experience of others is to listen first, to be humble about my own perspective that it's limited. So this is why I've invited our parish into an exercise of listening by reading the memoir of Ta-Nehisi Coates, who offers some perspective I would imagine many of us have never even considered before. I know I hadn't, some of the things he says. And there's still room to sign up for this, by the way. Both groups are almost full, but... You can sign up on the waiting list and we'll make a third group at a time that works for everybody on the list. You know, it's very easy for me to tell myself that I'm not racist or I'm not enabling racism if I'm never willing to truly listen with compassion and curiosity to someone different from me telling about their experience. So the first way we can seek to be not part of the problem, but part of the solution is to listen. But then another way we can seek to be part of the solution is by speaking up, 
Now, this may be in interpersonal conversations, but there also comes a time where if there are rights that we can exercise for the benefit of others, that we need to consider using them, that we need to use them. And this is the reason why I chose to participate this week in the Black Lives Matter and I Can't Breathe protest that was held in Oakdale on Wednesday. Now, I understand that there are a variety of concerns about these protests, that some of you could even be alarmed that I, your priest, participated. Perhaps for a variety of reasons you could be alarmed. So I want to take what's, rest, what's left of the rest of my time today to address a few of those potential concerns. So first, one reservation some Christians have voiced is about associating themselves with the phrase itself, Black Lives Matter. And for some, this is because there's an organization by that name with a platform that includes some causes that are unbiblical, as well as some causes that may be considered partisan. But as Canon Esau Macaulay said in the roundtable, Saying the phrase Black Lives Matter does not tie you to the organization. He pointed out, he said, hypothetically, if we found the website of an organization called Jesus Loves You, but then discovered in reading the website that, that this organization called Jesus Loves You affirmed a dozen things that we disagree with, would we stop using the phrase Jesus Loves You? course not. Well, the same goes for the phrase Black Lives Matter. Beyond any organization, it is a statement of black worth, of the worth of people, which every Christian should feel free and eager to affirm. Now, I'll admit that that I hadn't always been comfortable with the phrase because I hadn't kind of thought through all of this, okay? So it's okay. It's, it's okay to admit when we've heard something that persuades us to behave differently or to think differently. It's okay to change our minds on this. That's, you know, we're human. You know what that... Roundtable Deacon Kimberly Deckel emphasized the importance, though, of being willing to use the phrase Black Lives Matter as a sign of solidarity with those who are being oppressed and who are crying out right now. And Bishop Hobby observed that all through the Old Testament and the prophets and so forth, the idea of justice was primarily about caring for the vulnerable, the oppressed. He said that in Israel, the king's job was to take care of widows, orphans, and strangers, who in those days were the most oppressed, right? He said that he observed that almost every time the prophets reveal that God is upset with Israel, God, through the prophets, talks about how Israel's failing to care for the vulnerable. And so why should our priorities be any different in the kingdom of God? that Jesus invites us to live within. But 
Others may be uncomfortable with the phrase Black Lives Matter because it has been unhelpfully framed by some as anti-police. And yet, how could it ever be anti-police whose oath is to protect and serve all members of community? How could it ever be anti-police to simply affirm the worth of a group of human beings? As I said before, to do so is to call, to call police departments and unions, police unions, to account for the instances of brutality that we continue to witness even during these protests. I mean, this stuff's disturbing. From a perspective of a believer, that's a means of honoring them. It's an action of, of, blue, of blue lives matter to say, in those instances, be better, be better. So to get caught up in a debate, which is so, so easy, I, I, I'm sympathetic, I, I get caught up in it, I've gotten caught up in it, but to get caught up in a debate about whether to say Black Lives Matter is a distraction, that, that all too often, what it really does in effect is it provides a rationale and a cover for not speaking up, right? The same goes for the debates about Colin Kaepernick, the national anthem, and Confederate statues, right? What all of these debates have in common is that they're about purely symbolic things, right? Which means that so long as we're pre preoccupied with these symbolic things, it ensures that we are not paying the appropriate amount of attention to human beings, right? And that we're not doing anything to contribute to the love of neighbor. Worrying about these symbols is not loving our neighbor. Another tempting distraction is the conflation of rioting and looting with protesting or conflating them with each other, rioting and looting as the same thing. We just got to have more nuance than that. Though I would suggest we might have compassion toward protesters who turn to rioting. Hear me out. Can we have compassion toward it without condoning it? Because like Canon Macaulay explained, riots are actually a symptom of systemic racism, a sign that it is present because they reflect what? They reflect hopelessness, right? Riots reflect someone coming to believe that there are no other ways forward than physically asserting their will. And so they turn to lawlessness. They feel like they have no other choice. So can we extend compassion to that without condoning it? And then just because there are looters who take advantage of a riot, again, we shouldn't condone it. And if we're in a position to stop looting, we should. But to focus, to let that become our focus, to focus on the loss or theft of material possessions more than the human beings crying out for help, that is exactly what the enemy would have us do. Because just notice how it reverses the priorities of Genesis chapter one. Right? Becoming preoccupied with the looting over 
the message of the protesters is to treat the things of creation, the material things that don't bear the image of God as very good and to treat the humans as just good. It's to, to switch the priorities of the passage. So we have to guard against becoming distracted away from what matters most by what should matter less. Or as another panelist said, we need to ask ourselves, what might I be opposed to for the wrong reasons? What might I be opposed to for the wrong reasons? I mean, that's just a good question to be asking ourselves throughout life. And when we discover such things, which we all will from time to time, we're called to repent to not be in shame about it, to receive Christ's forgiveness and ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and help us do different. As followers of Jesus, we are called to live as if our fellow human beings are worth more than property, more than our convenience, more than our American dream, even more than always maintaining our complete health and safety. And this point is relevant to a final concern that some of you may be thinking about, which is the reality of protesting during the time of the coronavirus. I mean, there is still a viral pandemic out there after all. And it was mentioned at the round table that a leader, for example, of a protest in Athens, Georgia, has since tested positive for COVID-19 and no telling how many people that person came in contact with. So it may seem a bit contradictory or even hypocritical for a church leader like me to have participated in a public protest, especially when next week we're gonna start having public services where we seem to have stopped just short of requiring a hazmat suit for you to attend. Sorry. Let me just say, even with a mask on, which I wore to the protest, Going to that protest absolutely put me at greater risk than if I hadn't done it at all. Absolutely. You know, I decided to do it because of love of neighbor and because of what is at stake for others. I had to do a risk calculation. In fact, Macaulay at the round table, he he admitted pretty frankly, he said, people are gonna die because of these protests who would not have died otherwise. But he also noted that if you remove the church from these protests, there would be a ton more rioting, right? And this really resonated for me because a lot of these people aren't believers who are protesting, right? At Wednesday's protest, I found myself not only praying, but even starting chants to exhort the other protesters not to be provoked to violence, and to remain within the boundaries set by authorities. So ultimately, it's between us and the Lord if and when and how we choose to speak up about the epidemic of racism and police brutality. But when it comes to the risk involved, whether it's physical or social, or familial, right? It may be an unpopular thing to stand for in your own family. When it comes to those risks involved, 
If we are never willing to put our own well-being at risk for the sake of others, we're probably going to find ourselves complicit in a fair amount of injustice when Jesus lists our sins on judgment day. I know we're all grateful that Jesus was willing to risk his well-being for us. But he also taught that if anyone wants to be his disciple, we must take up our cross and follow the way he trod. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, he said. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.